Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Laura. How are you? Yeah, great, Julia. How are you? How's your week been? It's been really good. Thank you. Um, it was my birthday on Sunday. So that was Happy great. birthday. What did Thank you do? You. Um, well, so obviously it had to be a socially distanced birthday. We did order some very nice Korean food and had that delivered. Um, and we uh, saw some friends uh, very much at a distance as well. Um, but yeah, it was lovely. And I watched Die Hard for the very first time as a birthday treat. So um, yeah, it's been good. I like the way you say it as a treat. <laughs> well, I thought, you know, I've gone for 38 years without ever understanding what all the fuss was all about. So finally, um, I watched it and now I understand. It's good. Had some excellent German villains in there as well and some great <laughs> 80s hair, which was um, very much appreciated. What have you been up to? Yeah, I've had a good week, actually. A busy week so far. So I've chaired an industry meeting, which is good. And then I've been preparing for some mentoring, which I'm starting on Friday, which is really exciting. We've got a fantastic guest um, this week as well. We have Vince Bamford, who is editor of British Baker. Vince is such a knowledgeable guy. Um, I used to work with him on the grocer. I've known him for a very long time. I'm so excited that uh, we've managed to get him on. And we've also got a sponsor again this week, haven't we? We do. Um, We're very proud to say that Shopper Intelligence are sponsoring this week's episode. Shopper Intelligence is the first and only syndicated measurement program built from the direct voice of food and drink shoppers. With unique store-wide metrics in dozens of categories, giving you why and how shoppers buy, not just what they buy. If you'd like to find out more, go to shopperintelligence.com or alternatively, click on the link which is in the show notes. Great. Shall we speak to Vince? Let's go. Hello, Vince. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's great to have you on the show. And we have to start the episode by uh, giving credit where credit is due. Um, Laura, who came up with the excellent idea for our name? I would like to say it was you or me, uh, but it wasn't. It was Vince. So thank you so much, Vince. It's a a great name. And we'd banded around so many ideas and we couldn't agree on one. There wasn't a one that was quite right. And then the pick list, we thought, this is it. So thank you. No, absolutely my pleasure. No, I I do remember... uh, sending I think it must have been one of the weekends when we were starting to to talk about names I must have sent about 20 different ideas for names uh, to Vince basically just begging him for some feedback um, and he was very kind and then suggested something much better so we have him to thank for for the pick list thank you Vince and and Vince we should also say so you're you're editor of British Baker um a publication that as the name suggests is focused on the uh, the UK bakery market um we don't actually have a lot of bakery stories in the headlines this week but now that we have you on we could not ask you about what it's been like covering the last few weeks and months from a bakery perspective it must have been extraordinary for you 
It absolutely was. Um, I mean, as a journalist, incredibly exciting. Um, and also quite humbling to, to see how quickly some of these businesses have adapted. Um, quite small family-run businesses in some cases um, that literally, when lockdown hit, they saw their wholesale trade disappear overnight. Um, and we have literally, in the early days, we literally had bakers, we know, in tears um, talking to us about they had no idea what they were going to do. Um, they, they lost 90% of their trade overnight. Um, and incredibly, so many of them did you know, pick themselves up very, very quickly and found new ways of bringing in revenue. Um, and in fact, when we talk about the first story, um, I, mean, I, I think it does lead into in talking about some of some of that activity. Excellent. You must have been a, a man who was very much in demand for advice on uh, all things flour availability and, uh, and oh, sourdough yeah. chips as well, I can yeah. imagine. Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, flour wasn't a problem for the bakers. Um, the issue was very much at retail and still is. Um, I struggled to get bread flour from Tesco, for example, this week. So there, there are still issues out there, but that's very much related to the the packaging side rather than supply. There's plenty of flour out there. Um, if anything, with food service businesses closing down, with people like McDonald's not needing their BAPs for three months, there's been a lot of flour available. Um, but the problem has been finding capacity to get it packed into those small one kilo bags that the retailers like to carry. Yeah, absolutely. A recurring theme, I think, throughout this crisis. Um, yeah. There is enough stuff in the system but it's not necessarily um, in the right place indeed vince tell us about the first article that you've brought for us this week certainly the first article i found was from wired um, written by hazel sheffield and it is looking at the supply chain the food supply chain and particularly how coronavirus has highlighted some of the weaknesses in it um, and how local supply, particularly hyper-local supply, may be one, one of the answers to this. Um, it looks at the rise of local sourcing and local businesses. It does, in fact, um, the first example it gives, in fact, is of a local baker. Um, I believe he was a chef who found himself without any work to do. Um, he was a hotel chef, I think. Um, so he started making some sourdough and ended up selling over 100 loaves a week to local people. Um, and the article explores the idea that we are going to see more and more of, of this very local supply and local sourcing. Um, and I, I, I think it follows that we will, um, certainly. Uh, I mean, just to Bring it back to bakery, for example. One one thing we did see the bakers do. Um, they at the time when the supermarkets were struggling um, to source some quite basic core products, the bakers already had their relationships with suppliers. Um, so if they wanted to source flour or fresh veg or meat, they already had these relationships with suppliers. Um, they would be buying in meat for, for their own pies. Um, 
So they could quite quickly set up a grocery service, for example. And we saw a lot of bakers doing that. They would start delivering um, alongside their own baked goods. They would be delivering flour, eggs, meat. Um, and many of them um, have done that very successfully and plan to continue doing that. And I think it's really fascinating, that hyper-local um, opportunity, isn't it? And the thing that I always think of is how can these bakers, these butchers manage to retain some of this trade? You know, the Cantor figures are showing that there's 60% up, particularly for, for independent butchers, for example. But how and how do they manage to hold on to this when they've been the saviours of supplying their local community for, for three months? And how do they manage even to hang on to 50% of that? What are you seeing in the bakery sector? Are they doing ingenious things to manage to keep communicating with those new customers? It's something I've been talking about a lot. I wrote an editorial recently about it. They, they have to keep reminding people that they were there for them when they yeah. really needed them. And I am concerned that you know, people do have very short memories. And already I am hearing from bakers that they know their customers are going back to their old ways of shopping, particularly now it's easier to get delivery slots, for example, at supermarkets that they don't necessarily need that support from the local business anymore. And I, I think it would be terrible if we did lose that. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope and, so, yeah, I, I hope people do have long memories when it comes to that sort of thing. And I think it's it's going to be particularly challenging, isn't it, um, given what's happening with the economy as well. I think there will be a lot of consumers who do buy into the idea and the principle of supporting their local baker, their local butcher, their local greengrocer. Um, but if there is a significant price difference, that becomes a very tough decision, doesn't it? If you if you start having to to you know watch your budget. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, um, it's going to be very difficult. I mean, that said, some of these bakers have been able to be very competitive on price. But I mean, the, the other issue is, are consumers going to want to try and do their shop in one place, given how difficult it is to get in and out of shops um, these days? So, yeah, we're just going to have to wait and see and hope. I mean, for what it's, what it's worth, I'm still doing my part. I'm still using a local baker to supply some of my groceries. Um, and in fact, and a, and a local cafe um, started delivering a fantastic veg box um, that we get once a week. Um, and again, they're supplied by local businesses. So it, it, I mean, yes, it, it's, a, it's a fantastic thing to see happen. It'd just be great to see it continue. Laura, what's your first pick this week? So my first pick this week's from the BBC, uh, from their business section, and this is entitled Coronavirus Five Ways Shopping Will Be Different From Now On. Uh, and as we've sp uh, previously spoken about on uh, our shows, shopping is my hobby. So I was very interested to have a, a little look at this and uh, see what's what's coming. And this is all off the back of obviously this week, uh, non-essential uh, shops have started to reopen and what that's going to look like. And it, it's, a, it's a good article that, that sets out these five points, as I say. So first of all, it talks about how the shop will look very different uh, and how it'll um, retail uh, in High Street and, and, and other out-of-town shops will be very much like uh, grocery, where we've seen the two-metre labelling on the floor and real directional signage. Interesting, uh, keen to get your thoughts, uh, that when I'm going more and more into supermarkets now, 
you know, you've got that social distancing outside, but inside it's still absolute carnage and everyone seems to forget, particularly when you're around the freezers and everyone's scampering around. But anyway, um, what the uh, non-essential retailers are trying to do uh, is not only do that, but also other challenges, things like lifts that we wouldn't probably see in the in the grocery sector so much, you know, the likes of department stores and Primark are saying, you know, one family in the lift and really keeping footfall low, which will be hugely challenging. The second thing in this article, which is um, the, the, the saddest thing for me, is shopping will be a solo sport because this is my little bit of social. You know, you go, go out with your mate, you have a bit of a shop, probably don't buy that much, but you go out for a nice lunch, a couple of glasses of wine. But um, going forward at the moment, obviously you're, you're, you're on your own and, and, and shops are encouraging you to be on your own and because you can only meet six people outside at the moment. And in the article, it gave some good examples of how they're trying to stop people convening um Trafford Centre for example have removed all their seating in their malls so people don't sit and have a chat and a coffee and this is one thing that sort of linked to more of our food market was restaurants will remain closed and we're seeing more and more growth aren't we for the grocery sector in um their cafes uh, but that they're not going to be open for a while and, and that that's really interesting and maybe that will fall in line with the 4th of July opening we'll see one of the next things which it's had a lot of press over the last couple of weeks is uh, to touch or not to touch, uh, which I think is really interesting. And there's been a lot of uh, press for Waterstones I've seen recently, and they're using this terminology self-heal books. So if you touch your book, you need to uh, pop it onto a trolley and that trolley gets taken out to the back of the store uh, for 72 hours before it's put back onto the shelf. Um, similar sort of strategies in uh, shoe shops for example Kurt Geiger um, if you try anything on then it's, it's taken out of stock for, for, for 12 hours and that's really interesting isn't it you know are these stores going to have to have the space to have all this contingency stuff at the back and also are you going to have to carry more stock because people are going to want to keep trying stuff on um, the number four in the article are like people might be grumpy and yeah, we've all seen that, haven't we? That, you know, people would maybe go out for socially shopping and it'd be a relaxing atmosphere, but no, there's still a potential of people feeling frustrated and feeling anxiety. And reading in the article, one of the examples was Next, and they're supplying all of their teams with PPE. So the majority of the teams will have visors. And you're just thinking, you know, going into a clothes shop and seeing PPE and visors, which is right for the, for their teams, but that's not going to feel relaxing and the atmospherics are, are going to feel so different. Um, and then finally, uh, be prepared to wait. Um, and yeah, we, we, we all know about queues outside supermarkets and, and other stores. Uh, but it was really interesting they've picked out um, Selfridges here and Selfridges are trying to make the um, the queue uh, a bit of theatre and they've employed DJs outside the, the store to sort of funky it up a little bit, which I, I like the sound of. And on the Selfridges example, they say that uh, they're the only store that, that's listed that's allowing people to try uh, products on because that's another massive thing, isn't it? Uh, try, trying on, um, and that's one of the reasons you're probably not buying online if you, you want to try something in store. Selfridges allow that but the steaming each of the changing rooms afterwards and you think oh the cost and the time and the labor required to do all of that so what are your thoughts have you braved going out yet have you were you queuing outside john lewis i mean i thought it was a great article really really interesting uh, but to be honest i i got to the end and thought god why bother it's it's so it doesn't sound i mean i'm not 
one for shopping, to be honest, anyway. But honestly, it does not sound like a fun experience for anyone involved. And obviously, yeah, people that clearly there's a demand. I mean, I've, yeah, we've all seen we've all seen the the, the film and the, and the pictures in the last couple of days. But I, yeah, you, you won't see me out there queuing up for anything. And I mean, there was one particular crowd. I'm sorry, I can't remember who who the article was quoting. But they, it said people will be going back to shops with a pre-existing huge ball of negativity in our heads. I thought, no, I'll stay indoors, thanks. Um, I, I don't need the latest night trainers or whatever. Um, but it, it, it raised some really, really interesting, very real issues. My, my, my younger brother actually runs a, a bookshop. And yeah, he's he's got the same issue. It's, it's an independent business. And he's... Yeah, he, he's been racking his brains the last three, three or four months. Where, yeah, what's he going to do? I mean, he's, he's talked about having glass doors in front of the books and all sorts of things. Um, if I don't know what he, he's planning to open again next week, I'm not sure what he didn't actually come up with a solution. But yeah, I mean, a really incredible time for retail. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. The the one thing that I thought reading the article was that point about people being grumpy and what that means for the staff that have to deal with grumpy people and having to educate stroke enforce some of these new social distancing rules that undoubtedly you know many of us are going to get wrong at first try especially if different retailers have slightly different requirements in terms of what is okay and what isn't okay and that must be such a stressful experience for the staff. I mean, Laura, we've we've talked quite a bit before on the show about some of the aggression and abuse that um, that the supermarket workers have experienced and the stress they've experienced um, by uh, from some customers during the lockdown. Um, I think. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be a retail worker right now. I think having to enforce these difficult rules and dealing with with customers who are already quite stressed out, as as Vince says, that those neck balls of negativity. Um, I think that must be incredibly difficult. What's your first article, Julia? So my first article this week is from the Sunday Times, and it sort of builds on quite nicely from um, what we've just talked about, actually. Um, It's called Harrods Reopens After Lockdown with a 72-hour quarantine for rejected dresses and a ban on makeovers. And it was written by Christina Lamb. And as the headline suggests, it's about Harrods and how Harrods is emerging from the lockdown and the kind of shopping experience it now offers. It's a great article full of really fantastic detail. Uh, And it's a really interesting story because, as the article says, Uh, This is the first time in Harrods' 170-year history that it had to close. It even stayed open during the Blitz. The experience it offers now is, of course, very different to the Harrods we're used to. Uh, So for one, social distancing means the store is able to accommodate far, far fewer shoppers. We've heard this over and over again um, that, you know, every time you're dealing with social distancing, you're having to cut down those um, visitor numbers uh, quite dramatically. The figures here are quite staggering. So they're talking about 4,500 customers instead of 70 to 80,000 who would pass through the store on a busy day. And of course, it's a store that's also been hit really hard by what's happening to the tourism sector as well. 
So what are they doing in store? And there were a couple of things that I thought were really, really interesting. Um, and they sort of touch on some of the, the points, Laura, that you um, you mentioned from the BBC article as well. So there's all the usual stuff you would expect. There's hand sanitizer, there's one-way traffic, there's floor marking, there's 434 perspex screens um, across the store. But they've also offered some special training to their staff in handling bags. So when they hand over shopping, um, they do it in a way with a special technique so only the customer touches uh, the handle. And they've also recruited some social champions um, who will wander around and politely remind people of social distancing rules. Um, so no doubt some of the people that are going to be um, facing some of those grumpy customers. Um, clothes, uh, you just mentioned in Selfridges there, a really interesting challenge. Harrods are also one of the few stores that do allow people to try on clothes, but with quite a lot of caveats. So in the first instance, they have lots of signs up saying, um, browse with your eyes only so that you stop people from sort of randomly rifling through clothes racks and touching lots of things. If you do want to try something on, you will be asked, the article says, to sanitise yourself before entering a fitting room. Anything not to your taste will be bagged up, marked with a code and date, and then quarantined for those 72 hours that we've heard about quite a lot before being returned to sale. What sanitizing yourself means in this particular instance, I do not know. Um, but again, it's it's obviously it's like a bit it's a it's a big process, big complicated process. And it works, of course, because it's Harrods and it would work because it's Selfridges, because you're talking about a fairly affluent clientele and some high priced um items. It's not gonna work if you're selling 20 pound sweatshirts. Um the other really interesting point the article makes is about the beauty hall. And again, Nora, this is something we've we've talked about quite a bit before in, in previous um, episodes. Beauty halls are such a challenge because it's all about touch and smell and sampling products and trying things out. And of course, that you can't do that. Um, but at Harrods, they are using sampling to an extent. So they won't have any dispensers or testers on display. But if a customer wants to try something, say a skincare product, they'll be given a single-use pod uh, with the product that they can then apply to their own skin, which I think is a, is a good service for customers, but of course raises some packaging waste issues as well. You can imagine those single-use pods stacking up really rather quickly. Um, the conclusion, I think... Um, sort of echoes what, what Vince was saying in a way, which is that on the one hand, it's obviously great to see them reopen. It's great to see Harrods reopen, lots of other retailers as well. It makes us feel like we're going back to normal. Um, but the author, Christine Lamb, also says, it feels as if it will be a long time before shopping becomes fun again. Um, I think all these retailers are trying incredibly hard to make it work, but it's just not the same is it um vince did uh, reading the the about harrods did that persuade you perhaps that you should be uh doing a little bit more more shopping after all I, i'm afraid it didn't no um but again a really interesting article and some really interesting activity as she said the pods i thought was particularly interesting i can't wait to actually see how that works and obviously as well as waste a huge cost implication as well um Obviously, the Harrods, they can probably soak up a little bit of cost here and there. But 
Yeah, really, really interesting. Um, and yeah, a, a very, very interesting article. Another point it made that I really liked was the the new opening times, um, opening at 11, closing at 7, giving their staff um, a, a way of avoiding peak travel times, uh, which I thought was a very, a very nice move. Um, there are a few things that did, did make me laugh. There's this idea of social champions. Um, I, I thought it was a funny, a, a funny name, a funny title to give. I mean, it's, it sounds a bit like a trendy name for a digital marketing expert or something, rather than somebody to expect wandering around the halls of Harrods. Um, and having read the article, I did, I did make a point of having a look at some images of, of the interior. Cause it's been a very, very long time since I went to Harrods, and. It's quite a roomy place, so I'm, I think they, they may find it a little bit easier than your local one-stop to um, ensure social distancing. Um, but yeah, I, 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 look, I really look forward to seeing, seeing what the article talked about in, in practice, um, though I probably won't be visiting myself. <laughs> there was one bit in there, actually, Laura, that reminded me of a piece that you brought in two or three weeks ago. So when they talk about some of the ambiance that they're trying to create, the article says that scent is everywhere and surprisingly loud music. Um, and um, and again, the, the author of the piece says, the store seems to hope that bombarding customers' senses will distract them from what they cannot do, which I thought was quite an interesting interpretation of, of what's going on that you, you know, it's sort of like the DJ in Selfridges, isn't it? And it reminded me of that piece that you brought in about retail rules in New Zealand, where the guidance was don't have loud music. In, in fact, try and have a quieter store than usual because they seem to think that having loud music encourages people to speak more loudly and uh, therefore increase their moist breath zone. That phrase has stayed with me. It's a, <laughs> such a terrible phrase. And, and you know, that potentially carries a risk of having the virus travel farther. But there seemed to be particular concern about music levels and, and general volume levels in, in store. So I thought it was interesting that that hasn't come up as a concern over here. Yeah, you're totally right, actually. It hasn't married, married over too much. The the article, um, the social champions was really interesting to me as well. And it, it, that really struck with me. And the article talking about the skincare area, I think it is going to be key. Um, you know, that sector is going to come under huge challenge, unfortunately, because it's heavily commission based on the folks that work there being able to upsell a range of products by doing a, a makeover or whatever it may be. And uh, I was, I was going to say, Vince, we've all been there, but I, <laughs> you might not have been, I don't know. Uh, but, um, you know, you got to buy a product and then before you know it, you've bought five because, you know, it's, it's going to make you look 10 years younger. Brilliant, I'll have it. But, that you know, that's not going to happen because it's going to be hassle, it's going to be in the pod. As you say, it's more plastic, it's more stuff. So actually, you'll just stick with what you've got. So I, I think that it'll be really interesting interesting to see how um, an industry that you know does have a lot of cash and does have a lot of investment how that evolves and how it I don't know gets more online influencers and on more, on more online tutorials but without having that touch and test and that great um, experience it's going to be tough for them for sure and uh, but Harrods and Selfridges will be trailblazers so there'll be ones to watch that then it'll drip down to what's happening in Boots and Superdrug and others. Vince, tell us about the second pick that you've brought for us. Ah, yes. My second pick um, involves ducks. 
and eggs. Um, it's, I think, a fascinating story. Um, it's from iNews, um, the, the article's written by Lena Polianskia, um, though originally I believe it was covered by the BBC. Um, this is the story, well, this is what happens when people have too much time on their hands during lockdown. Uh, this is the story of Charlie Lello, um, a 29-year-old, not that that's relevant, um, who decided, as you do, that she wanted to try and see if some duck eggs she picked up at Waitrose would hatch. Um, and they did. She put them in an incubator. Um, I'm not sure whether she tried more than three eggs, but anyway, certainly three of them hatched. Um, and um, Beep, Peep and Meep came into the world. Um, and I, I just love I, I had absolutely no idea that this was a thing. And I've, I've well, I, I generally, I think it would actually put me off eggs. Uh, well, actually, that's a lie. I had a fried egg sandwich for breakfast. But I thought it might put me off eggs. It clearly hasn't. Um, but I do wonder whether some people <laughs> who weren't aware that this is a thing, um, you know, may, may look at eggs in a slightly different way. Um, the, the story, well, in fact, a Waitrose spokesperson does go on to explain that it's notoriously difficult to identify the sex of white feathered ducks, which is why occasionally this can happen. Uh, apparently it's quite hard to separate the male and female ducks. Um, so occasionally um, you, you will get, um, yeah, you, you will get this happen, though it is extremely rare. And the article does also go on to explain that it's far less likely to happen um, with uh, chicken eggs. Um, it's, it's a lot easier to sex a chicken from a younger age, apparently. So I learned all sorts, um, thanks to this article. Um, one thing I should have mentioned, actually, is, is that Charlie was inspired by a YouTube video. And having done a search, there, there's quite a few people out there trying to hatch all sorts of eggs in their incubators. Um, again, I'm going to blame lockdown. Um, they're actually some of this way predates lockdown. But anyway, I, I thought it was really interesting, and I do I do wonder whether it may have some genuine impact on the perception of eggs by the public. I thought it was a fascinating story. I wasn't up to speed with that either, and I was interested by, as you say, the um, statistics that said you know it is very rare. But how do we know? I'd be you know not everyone's given <laughs> no. that a go, are they? So uh, we can say it's very rare because it'll be very rare p people trying it for sure. But eggs, um, generally, uh, you know, the growth in that category has been phenomenal. And I looked, you know, t ten years um, sequential growth. Uh, last year alone was 3.4% up and we're buying 6.6 .6 billion eggs in the UK. It's just it's just a phenomenal market, but you're right. Will something like this maybe challenge the labelling around it a little bit? And there, I know there was, there was a quote at the end of the article, wasn't there, about, you know, what do vegans and vegetarians now think of eggs and should it be more clearly labelled that, that this could potentially happen? Yeah. yeah. What do you think, Julia? 
I, I thought it was fascinating. I mean, I have to say, I when <laughs> when Vince first flagged up the story, I was like, this is this is a load of nonsense. Surely this can't be right. And what was um, what was fascinating was just how far this story has actually travelled. When I had a look, I mean, it's been picked up all over the place. Lots of US media writing about it. I mean, it sort of sparked explainers in lots and lots of countries. People saying, should I be worried about potentially um, eating fertilised eggs? I think the key thing here is. Um, yes, it's clearly going to raise questions for some people, but it's so, 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 so rare. And I think the distinction between um, how rare it already is in duck eggs and then even rarer it is for, for chicken eggs, I think this is a sort of lovely feel-good story to an extent. I'd be really surprised if it actually had any meaningful impact on, on egg sales. Laura, as you say, that's a category that's really gone from, from strength to strength. So I would imagine it would take a little bit more than, than something uh, like that. But a great story. Um, and yeah, as I said, I think really, really lovely and feel-good. Laura, what's your uh, what's your second pick this week? So this is from the grocer, um, and this is uh, Perina claims first with Pro Plan allergen reducing cat food. So this is the the cat food manufacturer have launched what it claims is the UK's first cat food to reduce allergens on cat hair and dander. So this is off the back of um, one in five adults now in the UK have a, a pet allergy. Um, and this product is saying that it, uh, it's coated in a protein um, from eggs, which, which uh, neutralizes the allergen in cat saliva, which means less allergen is transferred to the animal's hair and dander when it is grooms, therefore reducing allergens in the environment. In a study, the MPD has shown to reduce the allergens on cat hair and dander by an average of 47% starting uh, at the third week of daily feeding claims a company so this is just really fascinating to me um and the article also says they've, they've um, had years and years of mpd to get to this stage but um it was probably really fascinating a because i thought it was a bit of a joke to begin with and then b i would love a pet but i'm allergic to everything so i was thinking wow could this solve all my problems here and, and then also how niche is that uh, to begin with to think right how can we feed a, a certain product which will, will stop a problem in humans but then boy wouldn't that lock you in if you had a, an animal and a, a small child in your house for argument's sake that was allergic to it you of course you would pay a bit more and you would but you wouldn't want to ever change for the 10-15 years life of that cat that you know that's what it was going to eat so I thought wow in terms of brand loyalty I'm already a respected name in that category uh, what, what a fascinating idea uh, and all under this live clear brand but I guess what and I haven't researched it but what I was thinking of I wonder if this is something that can roll over into dog food and potentially even more pets what what is this was this new to you or is this something that was on your radar what do you think Vince um uh, yeah again I, I thought it was very interesting um no I had I, I'd never heard of anything like this um but yeah, I mean, your your point about about locking um, consumers into the product is 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 spot on. Um, yeah, really, really interesting. Um, again, I did a little bit of nosing around. There are apparently some hyperallergenic breeds out there already, so you don't necessarily have to be feeding your cat this if you don't mind having um, the the Sphinx cat is one of the ones that is hyperallergenic. I don't know if you know the Sphinx. It's the the one that looks like it hasn't got any fur. It's a terrifying creature. The bald one. Yeah. 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 But, um, <laughs> the one that doesn't look like the cat. Yeah. 
I, I thought it was really interesting. So obviously, I mean, in the pet food market, there's been so much development, obviously focused on the pets and more and more premium pet food products. I think it's really interesting yeah, to see a product that's very much focused on the owner as opposed to the pet. Um, and yeah, I, I, I mean, good luck to them with it. Um, I, I think they're probably onto something here. Um, another thing I was really, really impressed with um, looking into this was the Perina website. Um, amazing amount of information in there um, for, for pet owners. I mean, I, I think it's probably, I have two cats and a dog. I can see it quite becoming one of my go-to websites now if one of them's acting up or something. I thought what I found really fascinating about this is the scale of the ambition behind an MPD initiative like that. I think it's a really interesting product and it'll clearly, you know, be a godsend for for, for people who are suffering from allergies and, and who are desperate to, to have a cat. But, you know, I think they're talking about having invested a decade's worth of, of R&D and, and innovation work in this. I, I So for me, this is a really interesting, ambitious story of kind of corporate innovation to, to think about expanding your marketplace or, or your market share not just by selling more, better, more premium, whatever it might be, pet food to pet owners, but to say, actually, what are some of the constraints on the size of that market at the moment? And of course, one constraint might well be, or absolutely is, people who would like to uh, have a pet, but aren't able to, to do so because of allergies. And to, to try and tackle that in order to then increase your market share, I think is a really interesting and ambitious way of, um, of looking at that. What's your final story, Julia? My uh, final pick this week is from the German trade press uh, from a not very German sounding website called foodservice.de. The article is in German, however. Um, I think Google Translate does a pretty decent job on it, but thank you for humoring me and uh, and reading this, uh, this German article. The article is about Dr. Utger and a new retail concept they've just launched in Germany. It's called Frau Renate, Mrs. Renate. Um, there's a whole backstory to that name that we can uh, go into to later if you want to. But uh, let me just briefly outline what the concept is. Um, so they describe it as a combination of bakery, bistro and convenience store. And they're testing it right now with an Edeka store in the city of Koblenz. First and foremost, judging from the picture, and they don't have a lot of pictures there, I think there's one single kind of concept shot, but it looks primarily like a food-to-go counter, offering anything from breakfast options to pizza, desserts, uh, ready-prepared, ready-to-eat, hot or cold, whatever. And then there's a sort of bistro or cafe-style seating area if you want to eat it there in the store, or you can just take it out with you. Um, Everything on the menu is made with Dr. Utger products and ingredients. And the customer also gets a recipe card in like a postcard style thing and a recipe sentiment app as well if they want to. So they can recreate the dishes they have just tried at home as well. And of course, you can buy all the relevant products and ingredients in the concession as well. Um, so on one level, it sounds like it's a super fancy sampling campaign, um, essentially. But what Dr. Edgar is saying is that this is really all about coming up with a solution that allows retailers, and particularly smaller convenience retailers, to have a compelling food-to-go offering 
backed by a really well-known um, brand that consumers know and trust. Dr. Edgar is pretty well known over here. It's a huge household name in, in Germany. So there'd be uh, really high levels of, of consumer recognition. And I think what makes this really interesting for retailers is the breadth of the Dr. Edgar portfolio in Germany. I think that's the key difference to, to how the brand is perceived over here. Over here, it's frozen pizza and it's home baking. In Germany, the range is quite a bit larger and it includes muesli, porridge, ambient and chilled desserts, ready-made cakes, cooking ingredients. So you get to cover quite a few different occasions throughout the day from one provider. Um, all the products on the menu um, have been picked specifically so the stores don't need chefs or specialist staff to run the counter. So it's fairly low on um, sort of personnel requirements. Um, and the counters themselves have a modular structure. So the idea is that you can go for the full shebang with, you know, the counter and the bistro style seating area. But you could also maybe not have the seating area if you have a, a smaller store to deal with. And it's a, it's a trial right now. They're doing it in a single store. But I think it's really interesting to see a big brand owner offer something like this to retailers. And I was thinking, I obviously, this, it wouldn't be the right fit for them to do it over here. The brand doesn't have the, the right profile or the right portfolio. But I wondered whether there were any brand owners over here that could potentially be well positioned to do something like that. I'm not quite sure there's someone that has that, that portfolio that, that would allow you to do that. But I think it's a really interesting approach to try and help convenience retailers to do food to go throughout the day um, in a way that sort of quite hands off and, and doesn't um, require all that much investment. Vince, what did you make of it, particularly from a bakery angle? Could, could you see something like this work here? I, I think so. I mean, uh, I, I think it's it's a really, obviously, point of difference is so important to retailers. And, yeah, something like this is, you know, if you looked into a single retailer, it's a great way um, for, for a supermarket brand to offer something its rivals won't. Um, I, I was thinking exactly the same thing as you think about, you know, in this country, who could it work with? And it's really difficult. I mean, the best I come was maybe Premier Foods with its range of brands. Yeah. Um, you, know, you, you could be serving pies with Bisto gravy in them and obviously you know, Mr. Kipling and all sorts of things. So I can see yeah, that that may be working. And, and it made me think, what are we already seeing in this country along these lines? And um, Higgity Pies, uh, a pie brand actually based not far from me down here on the south coast, They've been well successfully um, rolling out some branded counters, for example, in um, Sainsbury's. I think it is. So we're seeing, obviously, not not on the, you know, not not quite as ambitious as this, but we're seeing this sort of thing going on already. Um, and I I could see it being something we see a lot more of um, in the future as well. It just you know, it's, it's that little bit of theatre, that little bit of extra colour um, for a supermarket. I liked it. I think I thought what was interesting, and I, I, Laura, I, I'd love your take on this as well. I think what I like about this particular version of it is that, you know, Vince, as you say, of course there are um, concessions um, over here as well, but I feel like especially if you're a smaller retailer, you are required to place quite a large bet 
on a concession that is going to appeal to a large part of your customer base. So, you know, of course you can have a super great sushi counter and that might do very well for you um, at lunchtime, but it's only going to appeal to a certain segment. Same with pies, same with whatever it might be. I thought what was quite interesting with this, where you do, you know, you do this with a brand owner that's got a really broad portfolio, is you sort of have a wider range of, you know, occasions and, and types of products that you're potentially investing in. Um, but as you say, I also thought of Premier. That was my first thought. And I was yeah. like, I that's probably the closest I could think of um, that, that would offer that kind of depth. Laura, what did you make of it? Yeah, I thought it was a fascinating article. Not least, I had to work my Google Translate because my GCSE German was letting me down a bit there. Um, but you're right, in terms of those brand owners and in the UK, that their um, recognition for, to, to a con- recognition rates for consumers will be quite low, I would have thought. You, you know, if you, you ask someone who, who makes uh, uh, Mr Kipling's and those sort of brands, uh, a lot of folks probably wouldn't know. So we, um, we, we're not as strongly placed for that. And I think what this is doing is probably given permission for some of these big FMCGs to have that direct relationship with consumers that they've probably not had before. And that may be um, retail engagement where the, you know, the, the retail hasn't been keen to allow that to happen. I think it, it's changing the rules and it's allowing FMCGs to not only do that direct consumer piece that we've spoken about previously, but also have that brand exposure where the, they're omni-channel and, and the exposure within store. So, and, and I think retailers will be pleased with that because they want that NPD and that experience and funded for, for from another route. And, and I think the point you make about brand recognition, I think is, a, is an important one. I couldn't quite tell from the, the, the picture how much Dr. Edgar branding there was actually going to be. I mean, they're calling it Frau Renate and, and, so, which is a sort of slightly weird and obscure brand to go with. And it's based on this um, iconic advertising campaign that Dr. Edgar used to run in the 50s, featuring um, the eponymous Mrs. Renata, who was a sort of young modern lady, um, you know, juggling a, a successful career that seemed to involve lots of aggressive typing um, with running a household and keeping her husband happy and, of course, relying on those very handy Dr. Edgar products. Um, I'll pop a link um, in, the, um, it, it, in the show notes to, to one of the adverts. My sense is that they are calling this Renata. So there might not necessarily be an expectation that the consumer would know, oh, this is Dr. Edgar and these are all Dr. Edgar products. But um, yeah, I can't wait to see some more pictures of it because there's just that one sort of uh, concept store at the moment. I'd love to see how they actually make it work in practice. Vince, it's been fantastic to have you on. Thank you so much uh, oh, for, for joining us. It's a pleasure having you. Okay, Thank pleasure. you. All right, bye. Thanks, bye, bye. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.